0: Matthew chapter 6. Now, I'm going to give you a name of a guy by the name of Mike Murphy. Most of you have never heard of him in the realm of sports superstars. uh, He'll not be listed. And yet, he played an essential role for his pro baseball team, the San Francisco Giants. In fact, Mike Murphy, he'll never make any money through any endorsements. He's not going to make an advertisement smile and make a million bucks. He'll never make it in the Pro Baseball Hall of Fame. But this man has been with the Giants for 52 years. Started out in 1958 as a ball boy, eventually got moved up to a clubhouse attendant into his current position where he is the equipment manager He has faithfully served, whether he's cleaning cleats or ordering equipment or getting the bats out or loading things up, all this time with the San Francisco Giants, until they were finally able to achieve the epitome of success when it comes to Major League Baseball, and that is to win a national championship. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but when they handed off the World Championship Trophy, they gave it to the owner, the owner Instead of passing it on to all their ecstatic superstars that were waiting, he passed it on to this guy, this guy, Mike Murphy, and gave him one of the rewards of a lifetime. And Mike Murphy then passed it on to the team. You see, here is an owner who understands the importance of a quiet, hidden, subtle, very important service. And he decided to reward this man for his long-term faithfulness of being with the club since 1958. I would like to tell you about another owner who greatly rewards quiet faithfulness. That's God Himself. God is in the business of rewarding His people who quietly serve Him with devotion, love. They're not in for the accolades. They're not. They're not a, trying to make a superstar. They don't want people to notice them. They're in it to quietly serve a glorious God. And I want you to remember this principle. Quiet devotion is greatly rewarded by God. Your acts of kindness done in Jesus' name, not for the accolades of people, your prayers, your giving to the poor, your fasting to seek God's will, when we do this, And we do it in a quiet fashion. God rewards us. Let me just tell you some of the ways he rewards us. He he gives us the opportunity to glorify him. He gives us peace, gives us joy, gives us a sense of purpose. We grow and mature when we actually just, in the quietness of our heart, seek to honor God. And what we're going to look at today, when we come to Matthew chapter 6, is Jesus is going to drive home this point, that God greatly rewards quiet devotion. Jesus begins chapter 6, as we're making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus hands out another huge warning. And he says, Beware, verse 1, of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, if you are in the business of trying to draw attention to yourself and you are trying to make yourself look out, look real holy, he says, beware that sort of lifestyle. Those kind of practices have no reward for God with God. He says, you do things to be noticed by men. You have no reward from God himself. And so he says, I want you to be careful. And so what he's addressing is the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, these Jewish leaders, they had the mistaken notion that if you actually did religious acts, you were doing things that were right in God's sight, that that is what, and, and you could draw attention to yourself, that that actually was the, a virtue. That was actually kind of the epitome of holiness and godliness. When others could see you doing religious activity that would be supposedly in keeping with the will of God, that you'd kind of arrive. And the more people that noticed you, the better off it was. That sort of mindset actually still exists today. But Jesus says, no, I'm after the heart motivation of why you do what you do. See, some Christians have the idea that um, we're supposed to put on a big show. Actually, God wants his light that actually exists in our life because of our relationship with Christ to shine out. But we're, and the reason that we do things like pray and care for the poor and fast is not to gain the attention of people, but actually to bring glory to God. And so he's going to address this. He's going to tell us about the life, what godly living really looks like, a life that God truly rewards. And so he's going to begin, first of all, by talking about that God rewards the quiet care of the poor. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. He says, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, let me tell you how this is to be done. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He begins by talking about, listen, when you give alms to the poor. Now, this really, the word had the idea of actually showing mercy to people. But later, it just kind of developed the meaning that when you showed care or concern by giving food or resources or money to those who are impoverished, those who are in need, those who are marginalized, the poor in society. He says, when you do it, don't be like the Pharisees and scribes who when they do something like this, they make a big show of it. They make mention of it. Uh, Jesus is suggesting it's kind of like they're blowing a trumpet, like, hey, I just want you to know, I'm going to do this great act of benevolence right here, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to actually give to the poor. Everybody watching? Can we get cameras rolling right here? Okay? And so then they go and they make their act. Now, he says well, whether you're doing it in the synagogues or in the streets, I don't want you to be like that. I want you to be genuine. I want you to give to your care and concern for the poor. And I want you to do it in a quiet fashion in such a way as to not draw attention to yourself. And he says, those who are doing that, they are hypocrites. That word hypocrite, we're familiar with that. It means, it means it's the Greek word for an actor. And so when we, we know that when we see actors on TV or on the screen, they're playing a role, but they're not really that person. OK, let's kind of remember that old ad. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV like that would give you credibility. okay? we that's kind of what we think of when you think of an actor. okay? so the Greek word for actor was hypocrite. But Jesus is a identifying hypocrisy among the Pharisees and scribes. And that was this, that they were doing these things, but they didn't actually see even the blindness and the corruption in their own heart. He says, don't be hypocritical when you're giving to the poor. Let me give you, like, a modern-day example. You know how, like, we have, like, the Angel Tree Project, where we give uh, people in our church, and a lot of you, a lot of us do this. We get all these Angel Tree little uh, cards. It says what these folks need, these kids need. Their parents are incarcerated. We go out and buy them gifts. To be a hypocrite and uh, to do that insincerely would be to collect these cards and to advertise, I got four. How many do you got? You know, oh, I got two, man. Where's your care for the poor? Some kind of... Christian you are. That's not really holy. You can only take one or two. And of course, we would recognize that and go, that's disingenuous. You're, you've got, you're doing things with the wrong reason. And that's really what Jesus is after. He's after the heart motivation for why you do what you do. And so we are to care for the poor. Notice what Jesus is assuming will do this. So he says, so when you do this, it's not if you do this, it is when you do it. And the Jewish nation was to care for the poor. They were supposed to leave part of their crops. They weren't supposed to overglean. They were supposed to care for the poor and the needy because they were to represent God's gracious heart to a lost and a hurting world. Nothing has changed. God still intends to reflect his character through his people. And so we are to care quietly for the poor. It's kind of like uh, Melissa Jones. I say your na- her name. Everybody? Everybody here in Central Texas knows about her. And one of the things that uh, they're so attracted to this Lady Bear basketball player is because of her character. I remember first reading in the paper where she was actually observed buying a meal for a homeless person. Now, she didn't call the newspaper and said, Hey, I'm going to be close to the university. Make sure you get the cameras there and the newspaper guys because I'm going to do something that's going to make news. She was observed. Someone observed it. It was tracked, and it made the paper. In fact, it's still being referenced in yesterday's paper. And, you know, this girl isn't after accolades and people draw, drawing attention to herself and people saying, oh, you are, you're the epitome of what it means to be like. She is quietly living her life. And let me tell you, her character is drawing national attention. When you and I, when we care for the poor, we're to do it in a quiet Godly, sincere fashion. We're to do it discreetly and secretly. And God says he will reward you. You'll experience the blessing of being an agent of grace. I mean, when you do something in Jesus' name to someone who is disadvantaged and simply can't help themselves, and you tell them, I just want you to know that God loves you and Christ has come to save all of us. I do this in Jesus' name. When you you provide in that way, I mean, it is just a thrill to be a part of God's work. That's what he wants us to experience. If you do things to be noticed by men, Jesus says you've got your reward in full. You wanted to be noticed? You want people to go, oh, what a swell person. That's it. You've got it. You wanted it, whether for personal or professional gain. That's all you're going to get. But if you want to know the rewards of joy, peace, growth and maturity, depth of character, an expanding heart that is learning to embrace a lost world and a broken world, do it in secret. Now, does this mean that it is wrong to give to the poor openly? Like, if someone sees you doing that, like, oh no, I lost my reward. I wish you wouldn't No. Is that what he, is that what he's saying? Is it does all giving need to be anonymous. Well, actually, if you look at the early church, when you go through the book of Acts, you find a guy by the name of Barnabas. He sells some property that he's got. He gives all the proceeds to the church for the advancement of the kingdom. Church knew about it. It's written about there. In fact, you find that the people in the church were bringing their offerings and they were laying them before the apostles' feet. Okay, people saw that. It wasn't anonymous. It was known. And yet... In the next chapter in Acts chapter five, you have some folks that were in the church and their names by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. And they were kind of watching that. Whoa, boy, people really esteem that they're motivated by that kind of giving. These people are becoming leaders in the church because of their gracious care and concern. They go, we got some property we can sell, too. All right. Come here, honey. This is what we're going to do. We're going to sell it and we're going to say we sold it for this price. We're going to keep X amount and we're going to give the rest to the church, and we're going to make it look good, right? You got it? Game plan? And what happened? The apostle said, you were lying to the Holy Spirit. In fact, on that day, both of them lost their lives. It's not how you go about it, friends. It's the motivation in your heart. What moves you to do What you do—that's what Jesus is after. You see, God seems to have a serious dislike for hypocrisy, feigning and acting and putting on a show. He wants authenticity. The non-believing world—they actually despise Christians that act righteous in particular times, places, and events namely Sunday morning or when it looks good around Christian friends, and then are singing a whole other tune when it comes to business deals or how they're treating their wife or their family or what's going on in their work. They're looking for authenticity. They're looking to see that Jesus truly changes your heart and that you've got a depth of maturity in your being. So what God is saying is, listen, when you give to the poor, give it unto me. And do it quietly, generously, with an eye to my glory. Let me tell you another place that God says, you know, Jesus says, let me tell you that God also rewards the concealed prayers of his people. God rewards the inner person, the heart that just seeks his glory alone. And so now he transitions to prayer. And he says, verse 5, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. Now, prayer was very common in Jewish life. The pious Jews prayed three times a day, morning, afternoon, evening. Now, some of them made a huge show of it. Many others, though, quietly found places where they could be secluded They would not gather public attention, and that's where they prayed, and they actually took time to express their heart to God, to worship him, to exalt in him, to bring their requests before him, to be broken before him. What Jesus is after here are those who are setting up camp on the busiest of places. It would be the equivalent of like, I've got to make this really look good. I want everyone in Waco to know that I'm a really holy person here. There it is, Valley Mills, Waco Drive. That intersection right there. I'm setting up camp, and that's where I'm going to do morning, afternoon, and evening prayer. That's kind of what Jesus is addressing here. We're going like, man, that sounds crazy. These big shows of prayer. And yet, it happens around the world, and Jesus is addressing it. That sort of prayer, you know, you you meant that to be noticed by men. Guess what? You got your reward in full. But Jesus says, "My Father." Our Father, He wants to reward you, to bless you, to fill your life with depth, richness, holiness. He wants to glorify Himself. Let me tell you how it's done. He says, verse 6, But when you pray, you, you're to be different than this. When you pray, I want you to go into your inner room, and you close your door, and you pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret, He will reward you. Now, He's talking about an inner room. Most of these homes here are very different than our houses. Okay? How many of you have more than one room in your house or your apartment? Oh, really? Only a few of you. I'm surprised. I'll have to do a few more house calls. Really? You guys aren't living in huts, are you? No. You have, you have so many rooms, you can't count that high, right? The Jewish people, most of the Jewish people didn't. They had one or two rooms. So what he's talking about is you go find a quiet place, like a storeroom, where they might store their grain or their foodstuff. And you get yourself in there and you just quietly pray. You see, it's a quiet heart of just devotion to God. And that's where you bring your requests before him. And if you want to see what prayer looks like, the Psalms were the prayer book of the Jewish people. And that's where you see just the depth of devotion. And they just laid it all out there. Their hurt, their despair, their wonder, their joy, their exaltation, their needs. They just placed it before God, whether they were in a huge jam or life couldn't be better, whether they needed to be guided through the shadow of the death or they were about to experience the joys of the exaltation of being in God's presence. They just put it before God. He says, I want you to be, have quiet devotion before me. You find a place where it's just me and you. That's what he's after. And he says, verse 7, there's something else I want to tell you about prayer. When you are praying, I do, not, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles, those who do not know God do. For they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. He says, so do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask them. And this is what the pagans did. Pagans had lots of gods, okay? And so what they would do is they would repeat phrases over and over and over and over again. Another thing they also did is they would they would try to get their God's attention by just giving all sorts of titles. I mean, anything they could. And they would just say these things over and over and over again. And it was mechanical and it was meaningless. And yet it was it was repetitive. Sometimes they would remind their gods of all that they had done on their behalf like offerings that they had made or sacrifices. And they just kept going through these things and rehearsing. And the idea is that you could manipulate that God to kind of move in your favor, to do what you wanted. And so you see that, whether it's the priest of Baal, you remember that with the whole confrontation with Elijah? And they're spending the whole morning and they're calling out phrase after phrase after phrase, just mechanical, repetitive. They're not even thinking about it, but they're trying to get their God's attention. Jesus says, you know what? God's not like that. The one true living God, he is personal in nature. He desires to hear from your heart. In fact, he already knows what you need before you ask him. Do not use just this meaningless, mechanical repetition. And it's really interesting that Jesus really makes a big point of this. Because in a lot of quote-unquote Christendom today, today, millions of people will recite prayers. They've got them down by heart. And they will not think of even a word in which they're saying. They're saying all the right words, but there is no heart behind it. It's meaningless. It's mechanical. It's rote. Jesus says, I want you to speak to your father from the heart. He knows what you need before you even ask him. Now, there is nothing wrong with repeating prayers. For instance, when we make our way through Matthew, when we get to chapter 26, Jesus repeats the same prayer three times in the same night. Remember when he's praying before the Father and he realizes that he is going to experience God's full and just wrath against sin upon himself. And he says, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. He repeats that prayer three times. But let me assure you, It wasn't just going through the motions. He wasn't just saying the words. It came from the depth of his heart. That's what Jesus is driving after. He says, I want you to develop a deep, intimate relationship with the Father. And it's going to happen through prayer. And so serious is Jesus on this. He so much wants us to know the depth of relationship with God. He doesn't want shallow followers he actually gives us a pattern for prayer. We're very familiar with it and we many people call it the Lord's Prayer. It's fine to call it the Lord's Prayer if you realize that the Lord gave this prayer to his disciples. It's the Lord's Prayer he gave to his disciples. I can assure you, Jesus never prayed this prayer because he never had to ask like forgiveness of sins. Because why? He is absolutely without sin. He was perfect. He never sinned. But he gave us this pattern and so Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to develop death. I want you to experience a life of great reward before God. And so let me teach you how to pray. Verse 7, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. The Father already knows what you need before you ask. He says, verse 9, this is then how I want you to pray. And so he's going to give us a pattern. Now, it's fine to pray this prayer as it is, is given here, but this is meant to give depth to our prayer life. And now there's times where I, I feel like, you know, just spiritually, I, I, I need more. I'm, I'm getting into patterns. This is one of the places that I go to develop depth in my prayer life. Not to just pray this prayer, but to think through each one of its implications, each aspect and to expand upon that. that This is the pattern that Jesus has given us. And so he's, he's going to give us all these different elements that will develop health and wholeness and depth and maturity to our prayer life. And it begins with adoration. And he says, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven. One of the things I want you to notice is that when we go through this prayer pattern that Jesus gives us, notice how he talks about our, our. We are so caught up in our individualistic, it's all about me. But Jesus fully intended for us to have a heart, not only for our own life before God, but for all of us to have a concern and a care for all of the believers. And so he says, I want you to pray in this way. And he begins with adoration by saying our father. Now, father here is the word is Abba. It's Aramaic. And this is the term that they, like kids would use to refer to their dad. They would call him Abba, Father. It's a term that speaks of authority, warmth, intimacy. You see, there's a richness, a wholeness, a depth to relationship with God, a love, an intimacy. And he says, pray this way, pray, our Father. You see, when you know how much God loves you in Christ, then coming to the Father, to experience his love and to share your heart becomes natural. It becomes a desire. It's kind of like parenting with kids. If your kids have a safe environment, if they know you to be a safe person, that you love them and care for them and concerned about them, they want to talk to you about things. They'd like to tell you about what's happening at school or who said what or this happened on the camping trip. And they want to, like, what do you, what do you think about that? Because it's, you've created an environment where they know you, they care about them and you're concerned about them and you're committed to them. So it is with the father. And so it's our father. It's intimate. And yet at the same time, he says, who is in heaven. He's also sovereign. He's the God of the universe. And so you hold both intention. He is near, dear, personal, warm, loving, kind. At the same time, he is almighty and powerful. He is the God of the universe. And so come before him and say our father. Now, I I read this right out of Matthew here. Not one of you flinched. I didn't didn't see anybody going, "Ah, What? When Jesus said this, when all these people were gathered around him, there were a lot of Pharisees and scribes who went, Whoa! You can't do that! God has referred to his father 14 times in the Old Testament, always in a national sense. They never addressed God personally as father. When the veil was torn, Jesus said, Listen, you who follow me, you can approach God as our Father. You can come to him with that kind of love and intimacy. And so he's saying, pray this way, our Father who is in heaven. Now, let me just tell you, a lot of us don't pray very much because we think that um, God could just can't possibly be interested in my life. I mean, he's running the universe And I can't find my car keys or I got back problems or, you know, does God really care about me buying clothes for my kids or grocery shopping or what I got on my schedule? And so we think that God possibly can't be concerned. And then there's another thing. There's another reason why people don't pray very much. They actually really think that God's father must be like their human father. And a lot of folks didn't have great human fathers and their view of God is this. He's basically tolerating me. I am a huge disappointment to him. There's not... I mean, like, God would just probably love to get rid of me at any moment here. And so they're just like, he can't possibly love me. He must be mad at me. I'm, I'm distant from him. I, I don't measure up. In reality, he loves you with an immense, steadfast love. He is perfect, even when our human fathers weren't. And so he says... Jesus says, pray this way. Pray, our Father who is in heaven, come before him. And then he says, he begins on talking about, like, move to a point of exaltation, lifting him up. He says, hallowed be your name. Now, this is the part of the prayer where we're familiar with this. And we go, hallowed be your name. Like, we just kind of assume like it's like holy is your name. And we just kind of move on there. And we No one uses the word hallowed. And so like, hallowed, hallowed be your name. We just know that. So we just say, actually, it's actually a verb here. And what he's saying is, set apart your name to be holy, holy among your people. Set it apart, sanctify it, give God, God's name, give your name the highest of honor. That's what he's praying. Would your name, God, which speaks of his character and his personhood, would your name have great esteem among the people? And so it's really a cry for holiness in our own life because we are here to make God look good. To advertise his goodness and his greatness. And and so he's praying here. He says, Pray with the intent that God would be lifted up in your midst, in your life, personally, in your family, in your school, in your in your workplace, in our church, in our community. Pray that way. Hallowed be your name. And then he moves on to anticipation. Verse ten. He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is is, is in heaven. Verse ten. This is The idea of anticipation. He moves on from recognizing and asking that God would make his name holy and set apart among the world to saying that to a point of anticipation where your kingdom will come. And this really has two aspects of it. You can't read the Bible for too long without coming to the understanding that God intends to rule and to reign not only heaven, but earth. And he sent Jesus who is the promised son of David, the promised eternal king, to come to this earth the first time, who is promised to return to rule and to reign. And so the idea is that you greatly anticipate the rule and the reign of Christ on this earth. In fact, you can find it written in Revelation chapter 20, final book of the Bible, where Christ is reigning, and he reigns for this thousand-year period. It says it six times in seven verses. A thousand years, thousand years. He's reigning. But it's not just that Christ will come and reign on the earth. But when you pray that his kingdom will come, it's also to pray that Christ will be reigning in our hearts at this present time. You see, we follow Jesus as king. Do you know what that means? We do whatever he says whenever he says it. We are all about him and obeying him, honoring him, exalting him. We want his will done in this earth. We want people to see his love. Because we're following the king of kings. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, pray this way, your kingdom come. Not only is it speaking of the coming reign of the of the king himself, but that he is actually reigning in the hearts of those who actually believe in him. It's like he's saying, pray in this way that you have a vision of Christ reigning on the earth and reigning in the hearts of his people. And I'd like to just take a minute, just an aside here. We have adopted casual Christianity to a point where following Jesus and his word is strictly optional. You do what you want, when you want, how you want it. If what Jesus has to say or the word has to say doesn't fit with your agenda or how you feel at this time, you just set it on the wayside. But no king was ever treated that way. He is Lord and Master. We are actually slave, servant, and subject. We have been brought into his family to know his joy, but we are subject to the King of Kings who's redeemed us and paid the penalty for our sins. There is no king that just would say, this is what I want you to do, and the people go, "Ah, I don't don't think so. That doesn't make make me feel good. That's going to interfere with what I want to do. No, when we pray that his kingdom will come, we're praying that Lord, that you're reigning in my heart, and in the hearts of all your people, that what you say goes and it goes with joy. We moves on from anticipation to then verse eleven to supplication, and he says, "Give us this day our daily bread." Here is the idea that we come to God and ask for Him to provide all that we need. He's speaking of daily bread, but it's kind of like a synecdoche, which it use a part to actually speak of the whole bread, to speak of all that we need for life, to be able to, for sustenance and provision. And this is the heart of the person in love with God and dependent upon him. We actually see that we need him to provide. One of the disasters of American Christianity is that we have this drastically wrong assumption that we don't need God. Everybody have food this morning? Yeah. Yeah. Got it right there in my closet. I got money. I got money to burn. I can do whatever I want. If I want to go out to E. it, Just do it. Don't think twice. I want something. Just go out and buy it. If I don't have the money. I got the little plastic card here. That'll get me what I want. And what it does is it fosters a life of independence upon God. Nothing wrong to have money. Nothing wrong to have food in your closet. Just remember that everything you have—your job, your position, the food, your money, your resources—you're merely a steward. And God has entrusted these things to you. And so you want to develop depth in a life that God rewards. You come with prayer. And it's a prayer of earnest. God, would you provide for me, for my family, for the, my church family, for Christians around the world? We need you to provide our daily bread. In the Jewish mind, this was meant to be deeply ingrained. And let me tell you how God did it. He took his people on a field trip. You remember? They left Egypt, and he took them on a 40-year field trip known as the Exodus. And do you remember, God says, guess what? I'm going to strip you down to nothing, and I'm going to take you to a point where you realize that you are absolutely dependent upon me because when you have resources, and I take you into that land of milk and honey, I want you to always remember that you are completely dependent upon me. This is how you live. You seek my face. I provide So he got them to a point where they were starving. Remember? They're like, we need bread. And they wanted the onions and the leeches of, of Egypt. You know, like, I'm sure that was great food. We want to be slaves again to Pharaoh. No. God will provide. And you know how God provided? He provided this little manna, okay? Little bread flakes. And he gave them just what they needed for each day, except the day before the Sabbath, and they gave them a mount for two days, so they didn't have to work on the Sabbath. I want you to learn how to rest as well. I'll provide. You can count on me. But I want you to learn dependence upon me. I want you to learn that your daily bread comes from me. And so he taught them. And that's what Jesus is driving home here. Nothing's changed, God's people are dependent upon him. Pray with great supplication. And then he says, he moves into this next application. And that is confession. He says, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, the idea here is that we have violated God's law. We are in debt to him. He needs to forgive us. Now, before you start drawing some incorrect theological assumptions, let me just tell you how you and I experience relationship with God. We experience relationship with God by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we believe by faith in Christ, he declares us righteous. He absolutely calls us justified. In fact, if we are in Christ, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You believe in Christ, you are absolutely, forensically, judicially forgiven. It's paid for. It's settled. It's been paid for by Christ who died on the cross for us. Your account is has been cleaned and cleared because Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. What he's talking about here, though, is family forgiveness. You know, have you ever noticed that, like, when your kids, they do something wrong, maybe they lie to you or they break something of yours, they disregard something you've told them to do? Okay, there is tension, right? And there needs to be some forgiveness that takes place, right? You, You know this. How many of you disown your kids? Any time they just mess up. Really? Only six or seven of you. No. I No. Do you disown your children? Like, that's it. Change your last name. You were once a call. Now you're going to be a Smith or something else. You're out of here. No. We don't do that. Why? Because they're part of the family. But let me tell you, there is tension when there is a lack of forgiveness and issues have not been resolved. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You are to forgive. Forgive us our debts. And this is what Jesus says, as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgive in the manner in which we forgive others. Flip it around. If you don't forgive people in your life, you pretty much, anybody crosses you, you don't like something, <gasps> made you mad, you got pretty thin skin, said something, people made you mad. And so you've got all these people that you're embittered against. God says, we've got a family problem. It's going to be really hard for you to experience forgiveness from me when you're not willing to experience and express forgiveness to others. You see, I want your whole heart. Okay? And so he says, "Forgive us, pray for forgiveness. You confess your sin. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors." Now, who do you need to forgive? If you fail to forgive your spouse, Kids, somebody in to you, someone at work, parents, employer, your friend. Jesus says you're putting yourself in a situation where you're not going to experience the family forgiveness God wants you to experience. And if you continue on this course, it actually makes you jaded. And If you're going, OK, I got it. Let's kind of move on to the next point. We will. But Jesus won't. Watch. He moves on to the next point. He talks about the next one about protection. It's the idea that God, you are the one who's got to provide for me and you have to protect me. And so he says, verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here is the idea that God, you are the one who has to deliver us, spare us and keep us from doing anything that might profane your name, that might draw us into sin. Now, God doesn't lead people in temptation. The prayer is, God, God lead my life, and keep me from anything that would profane your name, like acting out in anger or moving on my lust or acting out on my pride. Because, God, I want to honor you. Let me tell you about sin. Sin isn't so much of violating a rule as is violating a relationship. You know, when I I sin against my father... Yeah, I've transgressed a command. Maybe I failed to love someone I should have loved. Maybe I said something I shouldn't have said. Thought something I shouldn't have thought. Yes, I have transgressed a law, but I have violated a relationship. I have brought something into my fellowship with God that needs to be addressed. Our heart isn't to go wander into pastures of sin. Our heart is to honor and glorify God. And so we ask for his protection. We ask that he would lead us. So the student on campus asks God, give me purity of heart. Keep me from going in the wrong places or, the wrong, or the, in the wrong relationships. Help me not to look at my friend's math test or the business person that's traveling. God, help me to stay focused on you and my family and to not go or watch or do things that are going to profane your name. Or add distortion to my soul or to the the widow who will pray God help me to not just be embittered and feel like I'm just completely isolated Lord give me a joy that is found in you this is how we need to pray Father do not lead me in temptation deliver us deliver us not just me all of us you want to pray for each other pray that you and I would be delivered from the evil that is all around Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Remember what Peter wrote? I guess. Let me just tell you something. He's doing a really good job. There are people that are just being consumed because of the snares that he's throwing out, the entrapment, the enticements. We need to be praying this. Let's just not make radical assumptions. Oh, we don't need God and I'm covered. Fine, do whatever I want. Jesus says, I want you to be a deep person. I want you to know the rewards of God. Pray in this way. Father, do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so then he, then he ends this by saying this. He ends with acclamation. Now, yours might have brackets at the end of verse 13 there. And that's because in the oldest manuscripts that we have, this sentence is not found. It is found in a lot of different manuscripts. It is a biblical point and it is something that's worthy to end your prayers with, and that is acclamation. It is an overwhelming, affirming expression of praise. And he says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. God, it's all about you. And you see, if you follow this pattern, yes, you could pray that prayer just as Jesus gave it, but he, he's given us to a, a pattern where we will exalt God, we will bring our needs before him, we will ask him to provide, keep us, deliver us, lead us, give us the ability to forgive, to forgive. When we pray this way, we add depth to our souls and we experience the reward of God. Now, remember when I talked about forgiveness? And some of you are going, mm, well, I, that's really nice, but I don't know, there's some people that have really hurt me. I don't know if I really am able to forgive or I want to. Jesus is well aware of that. So look what he says in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. You will experience the forgiveness if you are willing to forgive. On the other hand, he says, but if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. You see, it's like this. It's like the power of prayer is directly tied to our willingness to. To forgive. Haven't you noticed that the, the Bible speaks a lot about forgiveness, especially the New Testament? Why is that? It seems that our ability to experience God's grace and to extend it, power and prayer, it's realized when there is a hard willingness to do perhaps what is the hardest for us and yet the most Christ-like, and that is to forgive. You see, a bitterness toward others develops a hardness towards, Toward God. And so Jesus says, you must forgive. Are there folks that you haven't forgiven? You could be even sitting next to them today. This has far greater effect than just you, although it's destroying you. It affects your relationship. It reflects your relationship to that person. It reflects relationships in our church, in your family. And it has an effect on your fellowship and relationship with God. August 2010, there was a woman by the name of Helen Pergene. She wrote the book, Dead Man Walking. And they were interviewing this woman and and she was talking about one of her heroes of faith and forgiveness. She references this man by the name of Lloyd LeBlanc. I'm sure you've never heard of him. Lloyd is a father, the father of a 17-year-old boy by the name of David LeBlanc, who had been murdered by two kids. One of them shot him in the back of the head. Now, this was obviously a very tragic event. And yet she told in this interview about how this man was able to forgive these two boys, Patrick and Eddie Sonier. And then there was a situation where Miss Sonier, the, the mother of those two boys that had committed this crime, was taking a lot of heat and flack, and the people in the neighborhood were very upset with them and treating her poorly. And so Lloyd, because he had forgiven, he actually shows up at the home of those two boys that had murdered his son with a fruit basket, presents it to Miss Sonya, and tells her that that he understood that she was not responsible for this and gives this fruit basket as an expression of love and forgiveness and healing. At this point, the interviewer is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I have no category for that. How could you possibly do that? How could, how could he do that? And so then she references her experiences in talking with Lloyd Lebon. Lloyd apparently told her of the time where then the sheriff picked him up and takes him to the morgue. And there he sees his son. Now this man apparently is very good with his hands. He can fix almost anything. But right there he starts crying out, I can't. I can't fix this. I can't fix this with my hands. And then he begins to pray. Prayer. This pattern that Jesus just gave. And when he came to the point about forgiveness and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, he knew that that's what he had to do. He said, quote, I didn't feel it, but I knew that I must go there. And so he did. Friends, you're not going to necessarily feel it. If you're waiting for the feeling to come upon you, while well, you might wait until your arrival in heaven, it is probably not come to a point where I feel like forgiving. It's a point where you act on the basis of a will following the commands of God and saying, God, help me. Jesus, empower me and allow me to forgive. But do not allow anger and hatred to kill you. And it will. If you want to remain kind and loving, do you know what you're going to need to do? You will need to do as Jesus said. And by the way, forgiveness is a path. It is a commitment to a journey. And depending on the grievousness of the crime or the hurt that you've experienced, is something that needs to be renewed day by day. I remember forgiving. Let me tell you, God rewards the concealed prayers of his children. One more final point. God also rewards the consecrated fasting of his people. Look at verse 16. Whenever you fast, don't do this. Don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Okay? For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And apparently, this is what they do. They wear their tattered clothes and they juice some of these pious Jews took fasting very seriously. They fasted twice a week. Now, there was only one fast required in the Old Testament, Day of Atonement. But these guys would fast on Monday and Thursday. They would believed those are the two days that Moses ascended Mount Sinai to get the law. And so they turned these to the fast days and they looked apart. They'd wear their worst garments, things with holes, put dirt on their face, walk around really sullen. And you like, what's wrong with you? I'm fasting. OK. And they were drawing all this attention to themselves. Jesus says, hey, if that's what you want. You want people to notice you because you look bad? Make it a big scene? That's not godliness. You want people to notice you? Okay. Got your reward in full. However, he says, you when you're setting yourself apart to know God's will in times of prayer prayer, if you're if you're seeking God in earnestness, verse seventeen, but you when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And you know what? Your Father who sees in secret, he's going to reward you. When you fast, and there may be a few people that are fasting today, do so with gladness and joy. Shower. Look alive. Put on the clothes. You don't have to put ashes over your head or on your face or anything like that. Because why? Why? You are setting yourself up for quiet devotion to God. And when you do, God rewards that. Friends, as we are making our way through this passage, what Jesus is driving home is that quiet devotion to God will be greatly rewarded by Him. You want depth? You want to experience the rewards of life and grace? You want to bring glory to God? You want maturity for your life? You want to be an agent of grace? You want to know holiness of life? You want stability and maturity? Let me tell you where it will be found in the development of quiet devotion, caring for the poor, praying to the Father, taking times to fast and just be set apart to Him. On one September morning, a Christian woman by the name of Lisa Jefferson was working her usual shift as the supervisor for Verizon Airphone Call Center. When all of a sudden, one of the operators became rather distraught and she hands the handset off to Lisa. And so Lisa puts this hands, hand, headset on she listens, and she was then hearing the voice of a passenger on United Airlines Flight 93. I'm Todd Beamer. I'm from Cranberry, New Jersey. There's three people. They've, they've taken over this flight. They've hijacked the plane. Two, two of them have taken over the cockpit. They're, they're flying the plane. There's another one standing there. And as she was speaking, Lisa, who had also been hearing the reports about what was going on at the World Trade Center, just began to be start praying and then Todd Beamer said you know if I don't get out of this will you tell my wife my family that I love them Lisa who was already praying assured him that yes I would and then Todd Beamer said would you pray with me would you would you pray the Lord's Prayer with me and so slowly phrase by phrase, Todd Beamer Lisa Jefferson, they prayed over the phone this pattern of prayer that the Lord has given us. And at the end of the prayer, Todd Beamer said, Jesus, help me. There was a pause apparently. And a few months later, with a voice of resolve, he said, a few of us are going to jump these guys. End of the phone call. And a few minutes later, Flight 93 made a crash landing in a Pennsylvania farm field. Its target had been our nation's capital. And I tell you this because here's a man who understood the importance of quiet devotion to God. And this man went from talking to the Father to being in his presence just moments later. Friends, God wants us to have that kind of quiet devotion His words, his actions still inspire a nation and believers today. God wants to do the same in our heart. He wants us to experience death. It will only come from quiet devotion. For God will greatly reward those who have a quiet devotion to him. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your word, for its clarity, for how you have revealed in the scriptures, especially on the Sermon on the Mount, How you and I can know your joy of death to be greatly rewarded, to glorify you, to bring exaltation, to be agents of grace. So, Father, I pray that you would make this a reality. This week, would we not just plow through another week, but would we set aside times of quiet devotion to you? Would we look to provide and care for the needy among us and around us? Would we be willing to set aside times of fasting, whether for a half a day or a day or perhaps more, just to seek your face. And Lord, would you find us to be a people of prayer, praying in your name, not gathering the attention of people, but seeking the glory and the will of you. So we ask this, Lord, for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.